This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. This is kind of a special episode, a birthday gift to me, with the writer and director of one of my favorite movies, the movie Gettysburg, the writer and director, Ron Maxwell. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where, as you know, dear listeners and viewers, we are two things each and every week. What are those two things? One, relentlessly curious. Second, steadfastly non-ideological and non-partisan. We're in a very special place today, um, and I am consumed with a sense of humility. Sometimes you, uh, in your life, get a chance to meet someone you've long admired from a distance. Uh, I'm getting that opportunity, uh, that blessing today. Uh, we're in Flint Hill, Virginia. It's in uh, suburban Virginia, if you will, kind of outside, well outside of the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. We're in the um, library of a man named Ron Maxwell, who wrote and directed one of my all-time favorite movies, a movie called Gettysburg. He's written and directed other movies, Gods and Generals, Copperhead, but for me and for millions of Americans, uh, Gettysburg is and will always be his seminal work. Gettysburg is, as the title cert- certainly suggests, about uh, what I would argue and contend are the three most important days in American history. The hinge of history for our entire country. All that was at stake in the Civil War, in my opinion, came to a crescendo those three days in Pennsylvania. Had the outcome been different, our country would have been different. Had a sense of duty, honor, courage, and valor been distributed differently, our country would have been different. And Ron Maxwell and everyone associated with that motion picture did that heroic work, preserving for our country and for all time a movie rendering of these three crucial days in American history. Ron, I can't tell you what an honor it is for me to be in your presence to be here and to begin this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Uh, I've seen the movie at least 50 times. I have a ritual um, that my children know well. Everyone who knows me closely knows well. I watch this movie every 4th of July, right around the 4th of July. It's a good four and a half hours. It's worth every moment of it. But I revisit that because revisiting it is to understand, for me at least, what America's about, how America was one thing before the Civil War, and it was a different thing after that. And it was an argument among Americans about what the country would no longer be and what its future could be. 
and so much of that is encapsulated in the, in the movie. So I've spoken way too much. Ron, I just want to give you a chance to talk about the movie, what it means to you, and what you hope it will always mean for this country. Well, I, I read my <coughs> Michael Shara's book in 1978. It had been published in 74. And Called Killer Angels, won the Pulitzer Prize. The Killer Angels. Uh, it's a work of fiction. Even though it was well-researched, it's a work of fiction, and it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 75. I read it in 78, and I was immediately gripped. Uh, I didn't know how profoundly I was gripped, and I didn't know that it would start a 15-year saga for me. <coughs> but uh, within uh, months of reading the book, I optioned it. I uh, met uh, Michael Shara, the author. We became wonderful friends, and uh, thereafter started working on the screenplay. And by uh, 80, I had a, a screenplay, and um, from that point on, was trying to get the movie financed. I want to play for you and uh, pick up your headphones so you can listen to yourself on this. I want to play soundbite number one, um, which talks about the book and the effect it had on you. This is from a documentary called The Making of Gettysburg. It grabbed me on a, uh, in the subconscious place first, um, the way, the way a fine piece of music can grab you. And you don't know why, but you're captivated by it. I'm fascinated by the use uh, of your term subconscious because Shelby Foote, one of the great American chroniclers of the Civil War in narrative form, said the Civil War lives in our subconscious forever. It is on our subconscious nationally, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Yeah, it's there. Uh, uh, and. Uh, because it permeates our society uh, in, in terms of the lives we lead, in terms of our politics, in terms of our art and culture, uh, in terms of our language and our literature. It lives with us. And so uh, at some point in our lives, if we're lucky, we focus on it. We, uh, we, we see what is there with clear eyes, and that's when we start to read books about it or see movies about it or become more conscious of it. And it moves from our unconscious awareness to our conscious attention. And we see what a rich story it is. And so, it, it, and, and what I discovered along the way, and I discovered immediately when reading Michael Shower's novel, is, are these great characters. And that's what Michael uh, Shower's achievement was to enliven those characters, those historical figures, and also give them wonderful dialogue. Uh, so uh, my job as a screenwriter then was to take that novel and translate it into a into the cinematic medium, uh, and it was uh, and it, it it lives. The thing curious the curious thing about the Civil War, which I found for myself in making these three movies that I've made, is that the Civil War is at one time is absolutely uniquely an American experience for sure. There's, uh, the, there's these Yankees, then there's these Confederates, and they're in these places, and they fight these battles. But in another way of looking at it, which has informed how I've made the movies, is that they're archetypes, that what we're seeing has been played out before in human history, and sadly will be played out again, which is fratricide. And the other side of the coin, the French have a, uh, a saying called l'envers du médaille, the other side of the metal. The metal has a shiny side mm -hmm. and a dark side. The, the dark side is fratricide. The shiny side is brotherly love. And all three films, and certainly in Gettysburg, that is explored. You see men who love one another, who yes. are willing to die for one another. And I think uh, my friends who are 
veterans of Vietnam, my generation, and, and veterans since. It's one of the things that they recognize in the film is because it's something that they experienced when they were in battle. It's so true, and there are so many poignant moments in Gettysburg where the soldiers, the men who had fought alongside each other before the war, see each other across that deadly space and are heartbroken in anticipation of what's to come. And that is one of the more gripping elements of, of the movie. And to your point about Michael Shera giving these characters voice, he demarbalized so much of the Civil War in the process because the marbleization of the Civil War through monuments is a way to just sort of put it out of reach and to bring it to more to the human condition. I want to run two sound bites real quickly of actors who played in Gettysburg. Jeff Daniels was the actor who played Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Stephen Lang played General George Pickett. Let's run those back to back, Sarah, two and three. You get a sense that, you know, this is a sacred piece of ground and you, uh, you, there's a great sense of responsibility to this, this gig, you know? It's not just, uh, you know, uh, doing a job. This was a war about ideas. That, I think, is the most moving thing about it, that this Army of the Potomac was not to get land, it was not to get loot, and was not to get, it was not to crown their own king. It was about an idea. And, um, and I, I, I think that, that it's worth examining again. And I, I somehow suspect that's why a lot of these reenactors do what it is they do, to find the, the, the validity in being an American in a way. Stephen Lang mentioned the reenactors. Describe briefly what the reenactors meant to this movie. Well, there's no question in my mind that uh, Gettysburg could not have been made uh, the way it was made without the reenactors. In the uh, in the in, in the 15 years it took to make the movie, uh, the the approach that I thought we had to follow when I started in the early 80s was to uh, go to Eastern Europe and rent an army. Because that's how Waterloo was made by Dino De Laurentiis. Uh, it was made in, in the Ukraine, I think. So I went to Poland and I went to Hungary in the 80s to see if we could rent an army to get thousands and thousands of soldiers. It was just impractical to do it in the United States. I'm going to stop that thought right there because we need to go to break, but we're going to get more on the reenactors and how happily this movie was not made in Ukraine, but in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I'm Major Garrett. We're in the library of Ron Maxwell in rural Virginia having an incredibly marvelous time. I'm Major Garrett. Back for segment two in a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Thanks for joining us. Rural Virginia, the location precisely is Flint Hill, Virginia. Even more precisely than that, the magnificent library of Ron Maxwell, the writer and director of Gettysburg and many other Civil War-themed movies. Uh, In his library, we are doing a little bit to show some modicum of respect for the main combustibles of the time, or comestibles of the time. Uh, We have some biscuits here. We have a little bit of beef jerky. That's kind of uh, homage to hardtack and something that would have been approximating uh, beef jerky. Uh, This golden liquid, all I will say is it's what goes with branch water, okay? And then we also have some coffee. Uh, So that's about as close as we can get to what you would pack in if you were on the move. We're roughing it today. Yes, we're roughing it as much as we can. So continue the conversation about the reenactors. How many of them were there? And what role did they play in not only appearing, but giving the movie a core level of humanity and authenticity? 
Well, by the late 80s, after I'd been working on this project for a while, two things happened in about the same time. One was the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the co collapse of the Berlin Wall in 89. So any idea of working with a higher an army in Eastern Europe went right out the window. The other thing that happened, uh, luckily for us, was the emergence of the reenactor movement. Reenactors do all sorts of wars. They do 1812, French and Indian War, American Revolution, but the biggest number of reenactors then and now is the American Civil War. And you have reenactors who do Yankees and reenactors who do Confederates and some what they call galvanized. They go both ways. <laughs> uh, and they, and they ha build their own uh, uh, uniforms. They're not called costumes. They're called impressions. And they're meticulously accurate to the regiment, to the time, to the state, to the unit. Uh, so in fact, a, a reenactor is a living Civil War historian. Uh, uh, they really know not just about their regiment, but about the character that they portray. And as I say, some do Yankees and, and Confederates both. They'll do infantry, they'll do cavalry. The cavalry guys have their own horses. The uh, artillery guys uh, pool their resources and build their own cannons. These are expensive endeavors. You can imagine the commitment to this hobby. And their, their wives and girlfriends are involved too. Yep. So then they also have the, uh, the imp what they call the impressions, uh, uh, the dresses, the, uh, the, the skirts, the, the hoops, the, uh, the hairdressings. Of of uh, of what the Civil War would have looked like. So, in addition to the battle reenactments, they'll do b balls and civ civilian reenactments and medical reenactments. There's a whole range of things. It's a whole uh, interesting subculture in American life, and it's crossed the whole country. So, we were finally able to take advantage of this uh, in the late '80s, early '90s, when we were, we were planning to do this movie. And on the day, uh, we recruited. Uh, uh, in Pickett's Charge, there are 5,500 guys. It's not CGI. There's no CGI in, in Pickett's Charge. That's 5,500 guys, which we had for a week. It took us six days to film just Pickett's Charge. And uh, the, the beauty of these guys is that unlike CGI, when you see like masses of people moving around, I can move the camera in anywhere, any place, any time, and you're in 1862. It's not just that they have the uniforms. They're thinking 1862, 1863. They're there. And, 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 and if you don't believe me, and I know you do, but if somebody's not believing what I'm saying, here's, here's, here's what happened. One day on the set, during that week, the early part of the week when we were filming Pickett's Charge, the troops coming out of the trees in formation. Yes. Uh, that was the only actors we had that day were Armistead, uh, Kemper, and uh, 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 Kemper and uh, Gar Garnett, Garnett. Those right. three actors, because those are the division commanders. No other actors were on the set. They were all reenactors. It was hot. It was humid. July, July day in Gettysburg, on the battlefield, on the actual field where Pickett charged. Never been done before. Never been done before. And it was and it was so hot. We were th and the crew was running out with the Gatorade, trying to keep these guys. Uh, you know, hydrated, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we can get uh, Marty Sheen to suit up? It was his day off. Yes, suit up and come out as on Traveler, his horse, as General Robert E. Lee, Robert e. Lee, who we played in the movie. Just, uh, just to be, uh, do a favor to the reenactors, give them a little, little boost. So we, I asked uh, uh, Marty. He could have said, "I'm busy. I'm doing." He no. He said, "Fine." And that's a big deal. Uh, that's like two hours in makeup with the wig and everything before he could come out of the great guy and uh so we're filming it was the afternoon and and he comes riding out on traveler and we're lining up a shot and spontaneously 
we at that particular day we had like two thousand yards. They they just started cheering Lee Lee mm -hmm. Lee. It's like I got a hold of the case when I was on the cameraman. I said roll. You know I said tail sticks and you know instead of at the front you do it at the end. Right. You know and and they, they had to get the paper cups and the crews running around. And they got roll. They, the rolling sound, and we captured this event. It was what in the '60s we called a happening. Right. <laughs> yes. It was uncanny. Right. Because uh, they were in character. That's what would have happened. That's what would have happened. And, and, and Marty was uh, uh, deeply moved. I mean, he, he, he realized in that moment he wasn't Martin Sheen. They weren't there because he was Marty Sheen, the celebrity. They were there because he was Robert E. Lee. Right. And we rolled. We rolled. Luckily, we had a whole magazine in because this is the, before digital. This is motion picture film. And we rolled. <laughs> it wouldn't stop. And so we rolled out for like almost 10 minutes. And uh, and cases uh, motioning to me like there's no film left, so we didn't even get tail sticks. We had to sync it up later. And we stopped, and we said, "Okay, changing the schedule. What we had on that schedule for the remainder of the day, we'll move it later on. We have now a new scene in the movie. Yes, and we just uh, we blocked out. We then covered that scene. So we redid that with different camera angles for the rest of the afternoon. And that I think." is one of the most powerful scenes in the movie, and it was a, a, a scene that was not in the script. And it's a testament that could never have happened, with all due respect, with professional extras. It would never have happened no. with a hire of the army, a rent an army. It could only have happened because of those reenactors. You have uh, unintentionally brought me to a soundbite I want to play from the movie. Uh, Sarah, this is number six, because it speaks to something that generally knew that, Ra that Martin Sheen playing generally in the movie gives voice to, and I want to run it now, number six, Sarah. Soldier has one great trap. To be a good soldier, you must love the army. To be a good commander, you must be willing to order the death of the thing you love. We do not fear our own death, you and I, but there comes a time. We are never quite prepared for so many to die. We are prepared to lose some of us, but we are never prepared to lose all of us. And there is the great trap, General. When you attack, you must hold nothing back. You must commit yourself totally. We are adrift here in a sea of blood, and I want it to end. <clears throat> it's a very emotional scene to watch in the movie. It always chokes me up. Um, General Lee was beloved by his men. He was feared and respected by his opponents. And that encapsulates one of the great hazards of being a successful general, and does so beautifully. Uh, you wrote those lines, I suspect. What does it feel like to hear them again? And, and to play off of what you just described, the spontaneous thing of the reenactors who immersed themselves in that history as well, and that part of R General Lee's character. Well, uh, uh, I'm glad it took 15 years to make the movie from the time I read the book to the time we were, where it came out in theaters, because uh, the Civil War is such an emotional, devastating event in our history. When you consider 700,000 men were killed outright, or died, some died from disease, but 700,000 dead, another million and a half terribly wounded, the entire South devastated, entire towns burned to the ground. Uh, you must approach this with some sense of humility. 
and understanding the tremendous loss that was suffered, the tremendous sacrifice that that generation suffered, north and south, blue and gray, black and white, man and woman, that whole generation, our ancestors, paid a horrific price to sort things out because prior generations couldn't figure out how to sort things out nonviolently. There's a profound lesson there for us. We have to solve our problems with civility because when we stop listening to one another, when we start dehumanizing one another, this is the hell that can result. And I'm going to stop you right there and we're going to go to break. And on the other side of the break, I want to pick up that thought with your other movie, Copperhead. We're in Ron Maxwell's magnificent library and we'll be back in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We've had a microphone check because we're experimenting with a little bit of new technology here at The Takeout. We had lavalier mics. That's a term of art in our business. Now we've got the handhelds because there'll be a little bit less scratchy. So we're working through things here. But we're in the magnificent library of Ron Maxwell here in Flint Hill, Virginia, talking about not only the movie Gettysburg, but a movie he's also recently made called Copperhead. Before we went to break, you were moving in that direction. Please continue. Well, one of the reasons I made Copperhead uh, was because in both um, Gettysburg and Goddess and Generals, the exploration was, and the question was, the cinematic question was, why do good, honorable, ethical, moral men choose to go to war? Uh, There were a lot of sadists and nasty people in the Civil War, just like there are in all wars, but that's not what interests me. Uh, Other filmmakers should explore that. And some do. Uh, and some do. I'm interested, when I started the, the Gettysburg, and where would my friends be? Where would my father be? My father was a World War II veteran. He was a really good guy. Mm-hmm. He enlisted in 1942, he, like so many others. He may not have come back. He was in North Africa. He was up the, the boot of Italy, savage fighting. He was in the Ar- U.S. Army Air Corps. He lived to tell the tale. But he was a good guy. He was mm-hmm. an honorable guy. He was no sadist. And so what interested me uh, in the American Civil War, I wanted to find those people, and we found them. We found them wearing blue and wearing gray, honorable, ethical, moral people who chose not only to risk their life but to kill. This is a big choice. Yes. And, and so both movies explore that. So when I got to the end of that, I said, what about the good, honorable, ethical men who choose not to go to war? Again, there are shirkers. There are cowards. There are deserters. There's all sorts there of— There are people who bought their way out of the Civil War? All sorts of negative stuff, which should be explored in motion pictures, but that's not what interested me. I wanted to know where the strong, ethical, moral guys were. And I found such a man in uh, the novel by Harold Frederick that was written in 1899 about a, a, a fellow living in upstate New York. Abner Beach is the fictional name, but based on real events, who decided the Civil War was a mistake. And he didn't want to sacrifice his sons to go into the charnel house of the Civil War. There were many people like him on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. There were people in the north who said we shouldn't be fighting, and there were people in the south who said we shouldn't have seceded, we shouldn't be fighting. Someday, other filmmakers, I hope, will explore that, the anti-war element that was in the south, because it's a great story. Well, I explored in Copperhead the anti-war element in the north. And so it's an exploration of dissent, when you're the one person saying no when everybody else is saying yes, and that's a dangerous position to be in. What are you labeled as? Traitor. 
And what is the psychological process that ensues? Uh, so, well, Copperhead is about what happens in the town up in the north. And it happened all across the north, as it happened in the south, too, of a, a community that's divided and turns against itself over, over politics, divided over politics and how they dehumanize one another, even within the context of a small town in America. Starts with not listening. It begins with not listening, with not crediting the other person's point of view, with not respecting the other person's point of view. And it's a, it's a, it's a form of uh, mental tyranny that we're all susceptible. We're all susceptible of this, thinking we've got it all figured out. And the other guy's point of view is not just different, but it's immoral. It's unethical. It's, it's not worthy of consideration. And once we go down that road, it's a dangerous road to go down. I, I, there's a quote from the uh, Gulag Archipelago, mm-hmm. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which I love, and I'm going to butcher it, but it goes something like this. He said, if it was only so easy, if we could just take all the bad people and, move, and separate them from the good people and put them over there and deal with them. But that's a fallacy because the line between good and evil cuts across the heart of every human being. This is the battleground right here in our own hearts. Getting back to Gettysburg, you talked about the characters. I want to play a soundbite now, um, Sarah. This is number 12. Um, Jeff Daniels plays Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. We'll talk a little bit more in detail about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain on the other side of the soundbite. He's speaking to Sergeant Buster Kilrain, who's part of his 20th Maine Regiment. Play that now. What a piece of work is man. How infinite in faculties and form and moving. How express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. Well, if he's an angel, all right then. But he damn well must be a killer angel. Arnold Darling. You're a lovely man. I see a vast, great difference between us, yet I admire you, lad. You're an idealist. Praise be. The truth is, Colonel, there is no divine spark. There's many a man alive, no more of value than a dead dog, believe me. And you've seen them hang each other the way I have back in the old country quality. What I'm fighting for is the right to prove I'm a better man than many of them. <clears throat> You'll hear it in my voice, folks. Um, this movie hits me at so many different emotional levels, uh, and I almost never get through that scene uh, in one piece emotionally, um, because it talks about so many things central to the human character, the human character behind those who chose to fight, as you said. And this these two men are in the same regiment on the same side fighting for the same cause and yet have a fundamentally different interpretation of mankind, of humanity. And that to me is so moving uh, in, in the movie. What a piece of work is man, how noble in form and reason, how like an angel. That's, of course, from Hamlet, from William Shakespeare. And uh, Michael Shara put that in in the character of Chamberlain, which was entirely plausible because Chamberlain was a professor of rhetoric and language uh, and at religion. Bowdoin College at, in, in Maine, yeah. He's Bowdoin. not a soldier. No, he's a professor. And so it's perfectly plausible that he would be able to reach out for these thoughts and, and think about the nobility of man. Uh, and Kilrain, who's the immigrant, he's the only fictional character in the piece. 
uh, Kilrain is, I can tell you, because I've had long talks with him before he died, Kilrain is Michael Shera. Okay. That he, that's himself. Right. So Kilrain is the only fictional kind of composite character, but he articulates a different view. He has a darker view, as he says he's seen in the old country, he's seen people getting hanged on the corners. He's also, it's now the 1860s, so he saw the starvation in the 1840s and 1850s. He's seen the dark side of humanity. So he doesn't quite have the optimistic view. This lofty interpretation of all that's possible. Uh, 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 that Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain had. But Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain matures too. He matures in the course of the film. Yes. When he has to order men into battle and, and order his colleagues into mortal conflict. Uh, and he gets to see the dark side of humanity, too, as well as the bright side. The movie gets launched in part because, as leader of the 20th Maine, thrown into that quite unexpectedly, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain has to take on some other members of a Maine regiment who want to mutiny, which is, a, as I said comically in the movie, a naval term. He gives a speech to them to try to persuade them to join the 20th Maine. All of us have seen men die. This is a different kind of army. If you look back through history, you will see men fighting for pay, for women, for some other kind of loot. They fight for land, power. Because a king leads them, or, or just because they like killing. But we are here for something new. This has not happened much in the history of the world. We are an army out to set other men free. And in that process, most of the main regiment members who want to mutiny, who don't want to continue to fight, in fact, follow Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And where do they follow him? To the top of a place called Little Round Top. Geographically, I would argue, among the most significant places of topography in the entire arc of American history. Because, I'll put this to you, Ron, the battle hinged on what happened there on day two. Yeah, the, uh, the the Robert E. Lee and the Confederate Army uh, by this time in the war were used to having victories. Uh, uh, Robert E. Lee uh, had 100%, probably 110% confidence in his men. He knew they could achieve anything despite the longest of odds. But on that particular, on those particular three days, he ran up against men in blue who were not going to move. They dug their heels in. And, and we're going to talk about more. Why they dug their hills in. I've got a great quote from Shelby Foote about what was different about fighting on their own land as opposed to being on southern land in a second. I'm Major Garrett. We're with Ron Maxwell. Come back for segment four in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. This is one of the epic experiences of my life, I'll tell you that right now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to be in the presence of the home of uh, one of my cinematic and uh, literary heroes, Ron Maxwell, uh, creator of the movie Gettysburg, Gods and General, and Copperhead. Uh, we were about to get into the conversation about Little Round Top Day 2 and why it was so crucial not only to Gettysburg, the battle, but American history uh, every moment thereafter. Right. Well, I, uh, uh, Lee was convinced that uh, the, uh, the federal forces had massed most of their uh, of their troops in the center and on the right flank, the, the, the Yankee federal right flank. He had he had attacked the, uh, the the right flank the previous day on day one, and so his uh, he thought the uh, the Yankee left flank could fold if he could, if he 
concentrated his energies and his and his uh, military prowess at that end. So he directed um, General Hood and General Longstreet. He directed General Longstreet, and then and then Longstreet directed General Hood, and that's all in the movie in yep. great detail to go attack the uh, the Federal left flank, which was uh, hanging. Uh, it was hanging just just north of these two hills, Little Round Top and and Big Round Top. Uh, they had not occupied those hills at that point. So the Confederate plan was to occupy those hills and then turn the flank and rout the Federal Army. Sweep had, over them. Sweep over them. Had that happened, there would have been an open road to Washington, D.C., and the plan was to force the Federal government to talk. And to maybe engage in peace and negotiations. Peace yes. Because there would have been no major army between the, the, the Confederate Army and, and the Capitol. They, they would have been forced to evacuate, perhaps. So uh, and remember, they were surrounded on all sides because because Maryland was a slave state, and most many Marylanders were fighting for the Confederacy at that point. So the, so the so Lee's plan was was sound. The problem it was thwarted because in that particular day you had these guys from the twentieth Maine who were assigned to go to the that extreme left of the line, and they were commanded by this college professor Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And he had the, the, the remnants of the 20th Maine, which was already devast- decimated by previous battles, which he talks about in the clip you, you yes. showed earlier, plus the mutineers who had decided to stay on after that stirring, rousing speech he gave, reminded them of why they were in the war and the, and, and, and what, was, and the what, stakes. Was, what was at stake. So on that particular day, Hood, Hood's Texas and Alabamians went up against these stubborn guys from the 20th Maine who put up one hell of a fight. And that, of course, is captured uh, in, in, the, in, in the first half of the movie. As we know, Gettysburg has an intermission. And, and the last uh, uh, 45 minutes before the intermission is the battle on Little Round Top, which was some of the most, the whole war had ferocious hand-to-hand fighting. But if you want to get a sense of how close that combat was, that's what we tried to capture in that sequence. The intimate face-to-face pugilism of the war with bayonet, with rifle butts, and everything else. And you get a sense of how completely committed the soldiers were on both sides. It was an absolute hellish frenzy when when they got engaged at that close range. I want to play a clip from uh, Shelby Foote. This was part of a C-SPAN interview on one of his books that that was taken from his three-volume set. But it talked about uh, the Army of the Potomac, the Federal Army in Gettysburg, and why it might have been slightly different for them than it had been in so many previous other engagements or scraps. The Army of the Potomac had one great advantage. Uh, they were fighting on their home ground, an advantage the Southerners had had through most of the war leading up to that. Uh, one Confederate said, I believe the damn Yankees shoot straighter in the North than they do when they're down south. Shelby Foote has... Uh, such an amazing and memorable way of not only humanizing, but in some ways giving a, a, a humorous lilt to something that is so savage and difficult. I don't know if they shot straighter, but there was a sense that the stakes could not have been higher for the North, and that might have contributed to that sense of resilience on day two. Yeah, and there's some great moments uh, in the dialogue that Michael Shara put in, uh, the wonderful dialogue, when he has uh, um, uh, the uh, the general who who uh, who who, uh, who uh, designates, uh, deploys the 20th Maine, and he tells Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, now we'll see how professors fight, right. yes. because he was from Harvard, yeah. and and, uh, and Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was from Bowdoin. I want to play uh, one soundbite from you from the Making of Gettysburg documentary. 
That's number nine, Sarah. And I think that it'll be a healing experience to see this film. It should be. I think that through all the death and destruction and murder and mayhem and uh, the tragedy of it all, there will be a catharsis and it'll be very healing to, to relive uh, what our ancestors lived through and to, uh, and to feel it as a, as a part of who we are as a people. That's the aspiration of the film. In my opinion, it accomplishes, it accomplishes that and exceeds it. I want you to take a minute to talk about the healing and that it's not easy to do, wars, to do movies about the Civil War because we're still so subconsciously unsettled about it. Well, the war settled some things. It absolutely uh, held the Union together. That was the original aim, the northern aim. It started out because the South wanted to cede, form their own country. The Union wanted to hold the country together. That was decided. The second thing that was decided, the war aim was uh, aims switched in 1862 after the Battle of Antietam and the, uh, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, which was put into effect on January 1st, 1863, the Day of Jubilee. That liberated, that emancipated the slaves. So by the end of the war in the 13th and 14th Amendment, which immediately followed on the, on the war, uh, these were the two big immediate achievements of the war. The Union stayed together, one country, and African Americans were, were freed. But all the underlying issues were still there. Uh, does sovereignty lie in the state or in the national government? Does sovereignty lie with the individual or with the government? And the whole, every single debate we've had about the size of government, what government should do, what it shouldn't do, what it should leave to the states, we're still there. We're still debating all those things in the present moment. The other issue of race, very much a part of the discussion in America. It hasn't gone away. It ebbs and flows, but it's with us. How do we resolve this question? How do we do? How do we get to the place that Martin Luther King talked about, where we don't judge people by the color of their skin, but by the content of their heart? We're still working on that. So, uh, all these issues that were came to a violent uh, confrontation in the Civil War uh, are still with us and still part of the American character. And another thing that that, that the war brought out, which is very much a part of the American psyche, is the dualism of the American character that, on the one hand, like Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, wants to go and free people, liberate people, uh, and the other part of the American character says we should be minding our own business. This is also a contemporary debate, which is very much alive today. Should we be? Should we still have 8,000 troops in Afghanistan? What the hell are we doing in Afghanistan? That's one argument. Another argument is, no, we, we owe it to those people. We, we can't let the women go back into the servitude they were in under the Taliban. So we still have those issues as Americans, uh, the crusader American and the live and let live, mind your own business American. It's very much the duality of the American character. Ron Maxwell, it's been an amazing pleasure for me. It's My been pleasure. a great, great pleasure. I'm Major Garrett. I'll see you next week. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Katiana Krachenko, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman, Eric Susanen, and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. 
bing, 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 touchdown. Boom, boom. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. When you're committed to raising the standard, you're bound to ruffle some feathers. At Happy Egg, we like to say we farm differently. But in reality, we produce eggs the way people used to, by partnering with local small family farmers who raise our happy hens on eight or more acres. Because in our opinion, farming shouldn't be complicated. It should be happy. Choose happy with Happy Egg. Visit happyegg.com and look for the yellow carton at a store near you. Happy Egg. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.